0: website. They'll just be up on the screen. If you're interested in going further in your own study or maybe getting a few people around you and kind of going through some stuff together, these these books may be of help. They've done a heap of research over the years and found that whilst it is fantastic for people to come to church on a Sunday and, and even to get together in a small group during the week, which we've been talking about, the number one thing that people um, that will actually help people grow in their relationship with God is taking personal responsibility of their own spiritual growth. So we want to encourage people to actually do that. And engagement with the Scriptures is one of the key things. That's not always easy to do. I grew up outside of the church, and when you start reading the Bible for yourself, it can be a bit weird. Um, so some of these books are helpful to read alongside the Bible. You're very welcome just to read the Bible, of course, and there's free apps Um on your iPhone or your Android or whatever that you can download. But we just encourage you, if you're interested in taking an extra step, this may be a good step you can take. If you just go to our website and go to Next Steps, you'll be able to find these recommended resources. Cool. I'll pray and we'll begin. Um, Father, thanks heaps that you love us. Thank you, Father, that you are a father and not just... Um, a distant deity who does not care about your children, but you long to be in relationship with us. And Father, today we are talking about relationships, so we we pray, Father, we'd feel the weight of your heart and your love for us and for all people that we we run into on a day-to-day basis. We know you love every single person who's ever been created Um, It's not so much about whether people are good or evil. We all know how much we are broken people in need of your love and forgiveness. So Father, we pray that we would be people who are known for your love. Amen. Um, I've got a friend who I went to school with, and he's a really smart guy, got an OP2, and um, he's very capable, but he just has a habit of saying the wrong thing a lot of the time. So, for instance, one time, um, I'd just become a Christian, actually, just been a Christian for about a year, and a bunch of people after church decided to go to uh, this person's house. I think her name was Tanya. And we all went around to Tanya's house, and as, um, as we knocked on the door, her pet poodle came out, started barking and, you know, being friendly, and everyone's paying the pet poodle. And then all of a sudden, Tanya comes out... And she just had a perm. She'd just been to the hairdressers and had a perm. And my friend Andy, first thing he says is, oh, now you look like your dog. And we're like, what the heck did you just do? Like, you couldn't, you couldn't say anything worse than that, right? He just has a habit of saying the wrong thing. He started um, work as a teacher um, at one of my mate's schools earlier this year. My mate gave him a job as a head of department. And again, he was—he's a really capable guy. So, you know, of course, he's going to, you know, do very well for himself in terms of success. So, my, my friend Doug, he um he appointed my friend Andy as a head department at this school. And um as he's about to get up and um introduce Andy, he says now. Um, To the rest of the staff, none of them have met him. He says to the rest of the staff, hey, we're really grateful that Andy has come to our school. He's a very capable guy, got an OP2. He teaches IB, you know, chemistry and biology. Like, he's a very, very capable guy. And also, you may not know this, but he was actually offered the head of department at another school, and he got both jobs, and thankfully he chose us. We're very grateful to have him here. Please welcome Andy. So Andy comes up, everyone claps him, First thing Andy says, he grabs the microphone, he says, oh yeah, I was talking to my friends and they were a bit confused as to why I took the job here, because obviously the other job, like the other school's better, but it's just that this one's closer to my family, so I took this one. Like that was the first thing he said, and I'm like, you're an idiot, like how, you just say dumb things that get people offside all the time. Um... When we were at school, this actually happened. I'm not making this up. Like, this, these are real stories. I've got about 15 of them. Me and my friend were at the gym last night talking about which ones I could use, right? There's plenty more. If you want more, just come and talk to me after the service. Another time, we are at school, right? And, and um, Andy's sitting, oh, I haven't got a seat, but he's sitting down at the desk like everyone else, just doing his thing. The teacher comes up and he's just, the teacher's just had enough. And she's like, Andrew, I've got a problem with you. He literally stands up and says, "Don't tell me your problems," and then sits back down and starts doing his work. I'm like, "You're an idiot!" Like, I can't believe you do what you do. Anyway, he did very well at school. He was not very loved by the teachers. I can tell you that much. So, but this is kind of funny to talk about people who maybe sometimes get people offside. So I remember actually. Sorry, I've got ADD. So I remember when he first got his job. In the first week, and he was at his new job. He was working in like. A lab somewhere. He's in chemistry and stuff. He made three girls cry his first week. This is like, this is a gift, right? I don't know how he does this. So, But we can kind of laugh about that. He's actually a really good guy and he he surprisingly has really good, strong friendships that he's had for a number of years. When you get to know him, you just realise he's just a bit clueless. And we can kind of joke about stupid things that people say, or we can joke about the fact that, oh, I shouldn't have said that, or, you know, there's always those awkward moments. But the reality is, a lot of us know what it's like to have not just an awkward conversation with someone, or not just even say the wrong thing from time to time, but many of us know what it's like to have a situation where we have not just experienced some surface-level conflict, but we have experienced some deep, deep, brokenness in our relationships. I mean, if I was to sit down and ask you, and we could be really honest with each other, and we just sat down and had, like, coffee or something, and I just said, look, have you ever gone through a time in your life where you've had, like, a broken friendship? It's a, that's a really sad conversation. But we've all, I mean, if you've never had, that's fantastic. Most of us can name at least one person that we were really close to, but for whatever reason, that friendship no longer exists. No, most of us know what it's like to, to find out that people have been talking about us behind our back. And maybe you've even encountered it where it's not just people are being a bit flippant with their words, but maybe they've even been quite intentionally trying to hurt you. I mean, that's it's extremely painful stuff. Many of us know what it's like to deal with the pain, whether it's personally or just someone we know, the pain of divorce and seeing Friendships or families torn apart by broken relationships. And we're in this series at the moment called Feeling Good About Life. And today what we want to do is ask the question, how can we feel good about life when our relationships are falling apart? This has got to be one of the key issues. If we are relational beings and we have been created to enjoy rich, deep, fulfilling relationships... When relationships fall apart, it so easily robs us of joy, it robs us of peace, it robs us of the fulfilment that Jesus spoke about. So the question we want to ask today is, how can we feel good about life when our relationships are falling apart? Uh, If you have a Bible there, you're welcome to turn to Philippians chapter 2, and um, we're going to jump ahead from where we were last week. Uh, If you don't have a Bible there, it'll come up on the screen. Uh, The Apostle Paul... Um, had had this incredible encounter with Jesus and now he's kind of like a church leader. He's been thrown into this situation where he's under Roman guard. He's not able to be telling everyone about Jesus' great love for people. He's got to kind of, he's changed like a different guard every night or whatever, but he's under house arrest. But he has this deep love and affection for the church at Philippi. So he writes to the church at Philippi and he discovers in, in his interactions with people that there is conflict going on between different Members of the church, and it breaks Paul's heart because he knows God's heart is for all people. And whilst we're not always going to agree on everything, if I ask Tim his favorite color, he's probably going to say pink, and I'm going to go blue. That's fine, right? We're not going to agree on everything. That doesn't mean there's conflict, but Paul is aware there is conflict going on in this church, and he loves them and cares for them and wants them to be free of the pain and the, I guess, the trauma of going through this relational conflict. So he writes them and says this, verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in Spirit and purpose. Now, one of the things that's difficult about broken relationships, and you would know this, I know this, is that the person on the other side isn't always willing to come to the party. We often think to ourselves, well, if they, if they were willing to compromise, I'd be willing to compromise, and we could maybe meet each other halfway. We'll look for a win-win. But what if they're not willing? Or if they were willing to say sorry because they hurt me, then I'd be willing to forgive, but they're not willing to say sorry, so I'm not willing to forgive. And there's this kind of like we come, we come to the standoff, and nothing gets resolved. What Paul does here is he says, listen, rather than look for for what the other person is doing, rather than look to their attitude, rather than look to whether they're willing to compromise or whether they're willing to say sorry or they're willing to show some level of humility, Paul says, I want you to not even worry about what they're doing. In fact, last week we looked at this idea of the circle of influence and the circle of concern. And Paul really adopted this, this model, he didn't call it this, this is kind of a modern day way of explaining it, but what he did is he focused, whilst there are lots of things he is concerned about, he focused on that which he had influence over. And in fact, when he wrote to the Church in Rome, Paul said, if it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Paul is very aware you can't always change the other person. You can't control what the other person is going to do. You can't just wait for the other person to take the initiative. You can't just wait for the other person to be in a position of sorry. You can't wait for the person on the other end to say, I'm willing to compromise and meet you halfway. We need to look at what is within our circle of influence. We need to ask ourselves, what can we do? So rather than focusing on the other person and asking what they are willing or not willing to do, Paul points us to what Jesus has done. And he says, if we, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, he's writing to Christians and he's saying there was a moment in history where not just Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, but there was a moment in history in my life, in your life, where the Son of God united himself with us for this life and all eternity. This is this incredible truth. We could spend like 10 weeks just talking about this one idea. That Christ is not far off. He's not a distant deity. He says, I will unite myself with people as they are in their sin. I have come for sinners and Christ loved us in our sin. He doesn't approve of our sin, but he loved us as sinners. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. And Paul is saying, do you not realize the Son of God the holy one, the perfect one, the righteous one, united himself with us. If there's anything that makes you grateful, that's the motivation. He goes on. If any comfort from his love, Jesus doesn't just unite himself with us because it's the right thing to do. It's not just like, well, I created them, I better kind of take care of them. No, he actually likes us and loves us. He goes on. If any fellowship with the Spirit Jesus said when he left the earth, he said, I'll send you a helper, I'll send you another counselor to come in, to transform your heart, to give you a new life and work in you from the inside out. And then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. He goes on to say, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. To which we say, well, of course, you know, I want to deal with this conflict. You know, it's not just about me and what they're doing for me. I don't want them to do this to other people. It's not just about me. I, I need to stand up for what's right and what's just. There's an injustice that's occurred here. They shouldn't be allowed to get away with this. It's not driven by selfish ambition. But Paul says, listen, listen, listen. He says to me, he says to you, he says to all of us, it's so easy when we get into conflict to look at things from a perspective of selfish ambition. We need to get rid of that. He goes on to say, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. To which Paul says, of course we are all equal, right? But somewhere in the midst of it, whilst we are equal, we need to realise we need to consider others better than ourselves. Now, that's a confusing idea, right? Because we go into conflict and we say, well, hang on. I'm not, I'm not trying to get more than my fair share. I just don't want to get less than my fair share. We go on into a conflict and we say, well, hang on. I, I'm about what's right. And what's right is 50-50. What's right is that if I, if I did this, and they should do this. But that's not what's happened. In some way, shape or form, there's been an injustice that has occurred. And Paul would say, yes. Of course there's been an injustice that's occurred. That's why there's conflict. Someone is not getting their way. Someone is taking more than they should. Someone is overstepping the mark as to where the right boundaries should be. And we can debate where that is. We can sit there and argue. They should have done this. I should have done this. Whatever it is. And Porter says, listen, I've got an easier solution. Rather than going in and seeing them as equals, which they are, we're all equal in Christ... He says, would you go in and consider the other person better than yourself? Would you consider the fact that maybe if we were willing to consider their needs and their desires and their fears and their hopes and their dreams and their anxieties, if we were to put them in the forefront of our mind and have, in a sense, disregard for ourselves and our own needs and wants, maybe we'd be able to take some steps towards reconciliation. He goes on. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Paul isn't saying we should ignore our interests entirely. He's saying that we need to put the other person's interests ahead of our own. And then lastly, he goes on to give this incredible theological statement. If you're interested in studying the Bible, if you're interested in studying Christianity, this statement that Paul writes to the church at Philippi is a key statement that is worth studying. He goes on to say, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself. And became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Before Jesus was born, he lived. But not physically, not on earth. He was one of the three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he is the eternal one. He's the Alpha and Omega. And he was in perfect fellowship, in perfect harmony with the Father and the Spirit. But in order for God to reconcile himself with humanity, humanity had rebelled against God. Humanity had done the wrong thing by God. We had ignored God. And Jesus says, I know they should see it our way. I know they should repent. That is, they should change their mind about their sin. I know they should start to make up for the wrong things they've done. I know they should start acknowledging us in every possible way. I know they should put us first. The Godhead does not do that. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They get together and they have a meeting way before time. And they say there will be a time, a moment in history where where Jesus, the Son of God, will literally become flesh. The Bible says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In that moment, this is incredible. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, gave up, in a sense, his spirit form and was wrapped in a body Can you imagine not being bound by a body and all of a sudden you decide for the sake of this group of people who've done nothing but rebel against you and hurt you and dishonor you, you are going to wrap yourself up in a body. You are going to be born in a manger You're going to be born into this poor family. You're going to have trauma and turmoil from the moment you were born. There's going to be people trying to kill you. You're going to have to leave where you are. You're going to have to become a refugee in another country. There's going to be all this stuff that happens. Can you imagine having to go through that? Can you imagine what Jesus gave up for us? Why did he do this? He goes on to say, being made nothing in the very nature of a servant. Jesus was a king. He could have demanded that people worship him, but instead he said, no, let me wash your feet. The Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and lay down his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave up his rights. Now, this is incredible, because in order for God to reconcile himself with humanity, God had to give up his rights. And injustice had to occur. There was no longer about, it was no longer about fairness. It was no longer about, well, they should do this. They should have repented. They should have put this. They, no, while we were still sinners, God sent his son and Jesus died for sinners. God gave up his rights for us. And what Paul is saying to us, what Paul is saying to me is every time we are in conflict, every time we're like, well, they should have done this or they should have done that or they haven't said sorry or they won't come to the party or I'm willing to compromise but they're not willing. Paul says, no, no, don't worry about any of that. If you want to find a way to get along, as far as it depends upon you, you can't control what the other person does but as far as it depends upon us, let's live at peace. How do we live at peace? We willingly, freely, joyfully give up our rights and we do whatever we can to restore the relationship. Here's the main point. Eventually, there will come a time where we will have to choose between our rights and the relationship. Eventually, there will come a time where we have to choose between our rights and the relationship. Um, There's a YouTube video that's been online for a few years. I wanted to show it in church. I'm just going to show it now. Check this out. one more thing, on Monday night, I issued a challenge to the parents of America. I asked parents to pretend they ate all their kids' candy and videotape that and post it to YouTube. I'm gonna tell you what happened to your candy, Blake. I ate it all. I ate yours too, Alan. Me and Mommy ate it last night when you were asleep. Oh, oh, Rachel, I'm sorry. You know I like candy, Rachel. Do you still love me? So I ate all the candy. What? I'm so sorry. It's just I'm pregnant and I get really hungry. And I ate all of it. Can yeah, I get more candy? I ate them last night. I took them to work with me. What? <laughs> last night we, we stayed up and we ate all your candies. Are you guys okay with that? No! Why? No! <laughs> <laughs> Natalie, calm down, Natalie. Nah, you're ugly! <laughs> <laughs> what? She ate it. What the heck? Don't you guys think you ate enough candy last night? No, I only have like one bite of candy, are you serious? And you the rest? Oh, good for you, now you're gonna have, probably get a bellyache. Why well, you she need so much candy? Mom, that's two. Two what? Two plus two, two is, two plus two is equal to five. <laughs> you were so close. Oh, I know. I ate it, a- it all. It tasted so good. Especially the peanut butter cups. <gasps> you sneaky mom! <laughs> Thanks to all the sneaky moms and sneaky dads. Has anyone seen it before? I feel like that line, you sneaky mum, just became viral, like everyone was using that all the time. So, Um, In this video, we see children losing their candy or their chocolate or whatever it was and it has had a massive impact on the relationship. This is not a non-issue for them. Some of those kids were throwing tantrums to an extent that I would have been calling the police. I would have been like, I'm going to get beat up by my own kid here, right? So it was not a non-issue. They had something taken from them wrongly. There was an injustice that occurred, and as a result, it deeply affected the relationship. Now I have um I have Top Deck here. This is my second favourite chocolate. Is anyone else a top deck fan? So you can um so let's say um my favorite is Cadbury breakaway. Does anyone remember Cabri Breakaway? It's like the Cabri version of Kit Kat. You put it in the freezer, it's the best thing ever. So now if I come over here. And I'm just casually just sitting here, and I put the, um, the chocolate on the seat there, and I'm just sitting there. Now, Gav, my good friend Gav, but he, for, I mean, he's a buff guy, so I don't know why he'd eat chocolate. But for whatever reason, he decides to just steal my chocolate casually. So he takes my chocolate, and then I'm like, where's my chocolate? And I'm freaking out, whatever. And then all of a sudden, I realize Gav has stolen my chocolate. Is that a non-issue? Well, it depends on how much I like Top Deck. So if I really care about top deck, right, and I don't know why Gav's stolen my chocolate, that, I mean, I don't care about chocolate. You can eat it if you want. So I really care about chocolate and I, and, I, and I am really upset that Gav's stolen this. It's inevitable that that will affect the relationship. Would you agree? Now, what are my options? Gav has taken something from me that is not his to take. I am at a loss. An injustice has occurred. What are my options? If I care about the chocolate, if I don't care about the chocolate, non-issue. We hurt each other in little ways all day, every day, and they're just tiny little things that we just ignore them. But if this is a big deal for me, I can't ignore it. I can go to Gav and I can demand that he give the chocolate back, and that might work. <laughs> it might work. If it works, great. Maybe after that confrontation, the relationship can be restored. Maybe the relationship is finished. Who knows? But let's say Gav says, I'm not willing to give the chocolate back. I didn't know it was yours. It was just sitting on the, on the seat. It's up for fair game. Find his keepers, Mark. Sort out your life, right? It's my chocolate now. You left it there. You didn't write your name on it. You didn't get a little label and you, know, you didn't get your mum to label it for you. It's my chocolate. He's unwilling. Or let's say, like he has, he's begun to eat the chocolate and he can't give it back. Because so often in life, isn't it true that when we hurt someone, we can't make up for it anyway? Whenever I hurt someone, it's not like I can say, well, I'll make up for it in this other way. It's impossible to make up for the wrong that I've done most of the time. So what are my options? I demand it back. Hopefully he says yes, but he says no, I'm unwilling or no, I'm unable. What's my, what, what option do I have left? The only option I have left is to give up my right for justice, to say, Gav, your concerns and needs are greater than mine. It's fine. I I, I don't need to say this to him, but in my head, I give up my right for justice. I give up my right to uh, to have things be put back to right. And I simply just say, Gav, what I care about most is us and our friendship. Chocolate is irrelevant. What matters is our relationship. What are you doing this afternoon? Let's hang. At some stage, I need to acknowledge that an injustice has been done. Someone has taken something from me that they may be unable or unwilling to give back, and I can either fight for my rights or I can look to restore the relationship. Now, what does all this have to do with feeling good about life? What does all this have to do with feeling good about life? Well, for one thing, people who live like this are less bitter. Would you agree? They just are. Um, I heard a story. I'm going to try and pronounce the name. uh, Wai, I think, and Jeremiah. Their photo will come up on the screen. I've got their permission to tell this story. This is full on. Wai and Jeremiah... um, one day, Jeremiah was backing out of his driveway and he, um, he ran over their daughter and killed her. Now, as you can imagine, incredibly traumatic for everyone. But Jeremiah, this ruined him as it would ruin any of us. He couldn't even look at himself in the mirror. He, he spiraled down. He did all the things that you would fully expect any one of us to do. He was a mess. But added to that... His wife, Wa'i, also was not coping, as you would expect. And she said uh, that she couldn't even be in the same room with him. She could not look at him. She did not want to go near him. Everything in her was full of bitterness and resentment and anger towards her husband for what he had accidentally done. This is what she says in her own words. Earlier this year... When our youngest daughter passed away, my life was so deeply broken, I didn't know how I could live anymore. I cried out to God and said, if I'm still valuable to you, then change my life. I felt only bitterness and fear. All love had gone from me. My heart was so hard. Then on Easter Sunday, the day Jesus was resurrected, one month after my daughter's death, Jesus showed me the darkness I was in and he pulled me out of it. He knew, I knew in my heart, he was the creator and giver of life and he was giving me life. I felt this life come into me like I was being born again. In this moment, my pain was gone. It had been lifted off me. Jesus spoke to me. He said, the answer I was searching for is found through faith in him. This moment changed everything for me. Immediately, I felt like eating again I could, I could speak again, but I could only wanted to speak about Jesus. The despair and anger was gone. And I had love for my husband and for my family again. Even more love than I had before, ever had before. I could even laugh again. This is a tragic story, but this is a beautiful story of God's redemption and grace. And God freeing a lady who had every reason to be angry and bitter, like no one is like, thinking that's unjustified. And injustice had been done. But God, in a sense, performed a miracle in her heart. She was able to give up her rights. She was able to say, yes, an injustice has been done. And that allowed her to release the bitterness and anger towards her husband. God performed a miracle in her life. Nelson Mandela said this, Resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. It never does anyone any good. And it certainly does not help us to feel good about life. The second thing will happen when we give up our rights and we've put the relationship ahead of our rights is hopefully over time we will have more and better relationships. Would you agree? This just makes sense. If I constantly prioritise relationships over my rights... I should find myself having more and better and richer relationships. I have a friend who I went to uni with. She, again, was very smart. I've hung out with a lot of smart people in my life. I'm not smart. I'm just smart enough to know if you're hanging out with smart people when you're at uni, they can get you through. And that's how I got through physics. So she was an OP1, uh, attractive, outgoing, extremely confident, good people skills, charismatic, not boring, great person to be around. Very popular, very well known. um, Had lots of friends. Now, if you would ask me how would she go relationally, I would say, well, of course she's going to go really well. She's really, you know, all those things I just mentioned: popular, charismatic, you know, interesting, whatever. But this is what I know. I've known her for a very long time. She also has an extremely strong sense of justice. She actually studied law. She has a very strong sense of justice. And as a result of that, every time there is an injustice that occurs between her and someone else, for whatever reason, she has to fight for her rights. Now, I could tell you story after story where I've seen this happen, and I'd be happy to say that probably most of the time she's in the right. It's not that she's in the wrong. She's articulate, she's a clear thinker, she, she's got the reasons why she's right. But fighting for her rights has not ended well for her. There is a history of and, and there is a history of broken friendships, one after the next after the next. It's such a big thing for her that even if other people are fighting, that's got nothing to do with her, she has such a strong sense of justice, she has to take a side and shun the other person. Now, is it her people skills? No. You know, it's not like my other friend who's saying all the wrong thing at all the wrong times. She's excellent with people. Is it her, her ability to be able to read people or, or be... Epith- no, it's none of that. It is that her strong sense of justice and her desire and need to be right and to have her rights met stop her from having deep, long-term, rich friendships. As we are willing to give up our rights... Hopefully, over time, we'll have more and better friendships. The last thing is this. When injustice has occurred and we give up our rights in order to restore the relationship, we get a glimpse of what Jesus did for us. We get greater appreciation of how much God has given up for us. Chuck Swindoll said this. Let's imagine you have a six-year-old son whom you love dearly. Tragically, one day you discover that your son was horribly murdered. After a lengthy search, the investigators of the crime find the killer. You have a choice. If you used every means in your power to kill the murderer for this crime, that would be vengeance or revenge. If, however, you're content to sit back and let the legal authorities take over and execute him on what is a proper and fair trial, a plea of guilty, perhaps even capital punishment, that is justice. But if you should plead for the pardon of the murderer, forgive him completely, invite him into your home and adopt him as your own son, that is grace. And that is shocking. This is crazy. I've used this, this paragraph. This is one paragraph out of a book. I've shared this with so many people. And even right now, many of us are sitting there going, this is, that's, that's not right. There's, there's too much injustice. No one should, should do that. They shouldn't get off that easily. But what we are reminded of every time we give up our little rights to be right and our little rights to get our way And we have to deal with whatever it is that we're dealing with. We are reminded of the incredible sacrifice that Jesus made. And how willing God was to give up his rights so that he could be reconciled with humanity. Maybe today you're kind of sitting there like many of us are sitting there and going, this is just, I can't comprehend that. That's, that's just too much. But that is God's love for us. And if you're saying today, I want to experience this love, I, I, I thought that I was too much in the wrong. I thought that I'd done too many wrong things. I thought I had to make up for my sin. But if you're saying today, you want that kind of love, you want that kind of life in your life, if you want the kind of thing that what he talked about, where the life of God comes into your life, and you are born again, you are made a new person, you receive forgiveness of sins. Our Father in heaven adopts us into his family. He gives us his spirit. And we are declared uncondemnable because Jesus was condemned in our behalf. If that's you today, I'm just going to simply give you an opportunity right now to pray and to put our faith in Jesus. So can we just have every single person with their heads bowed and their eyes closed? And if you're saying today, hey, that's me, I know I'm a sinner. And I need Jesus to save me. You simply put up your hand right now and say, God, this is my moment to trust in you. I want to be born again. I want the new life. Just put your hand up right now and say, Jesus, this is my moment. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your love and your concern for us. I cannot comprehend, we cannot comprehend the rights that Jesus gave up to come to the earth, to pay for our sin in full. Right now, Father, we declare we are sinners who need Jesus to save us. We believe he is the saviour, that he died on the cross to pay for our sin in full and that he rose from the dead. Would you make us a new person, give us your life, um, give us the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us and adopt us as your very own loved child. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.